On episode 33 of the Violence Design Lab podcast, we're talking about how to portray characters who are honorable versus characters who are dishonorable. This comes up all the time in dramatic scenarios, and it's something not covered in technique workshops or historical fighting manuals. So let's take on the challenge here. Out swords and to work with all. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast. Now here's the mad scientist himself, David Barefoot. Greetings, David here. You might know me through my work as a violence designer or through my website, violencedesignlab.com, but either way, think of me as your virtual coach and online mentor. I'm here to encourage you to improve your stage combat, to coach you into choreographing better fights, and to train you to tackle the challenges of theatrical violence design. So, welcome back to the podcast. I want to remind you about our question of the month. This is a a question I ask my listeners throughout the month, and then the following uh, month, in this case October, we're going to answer the question and hear from you, the listeners. Question for the month of September is, what skill did a show you were designing unexpectedly require that you had to suddenly pick up? We'll discuss it in October, but I don't know if you've been in this situation, I know I have, where you sign on to choreograph the fights or the violence for a show, and suddenly there's a weapon style or a, a type of stunt or even a, a, a kind of fighting style that you've never learned that the director is requiring. Maybe it was in the show and you overlooked it, but more often it shows up mid-rehearsal. They say, oh yeah, can you also do X? Well, I want to hear from you. I want to know what you did in that situation. Did you bring in outside help? Did you learn the skill? Did you tell the director, nope, sorry, can't do it? I want to hear from you, the listener. Shoot me an email to violencedesignlab at gmail.com. You can either include your story in the body of the email, or even better, if you record your story in your own voice on your phone, shoot me the mp3 file. If it's too big for email, you can maybe, I don't know, post it on Google Drive or something like that. But if you get it to me that way, I'll include your voice in your own words on the podcast. I'd love to hear your stories, and I look forward to sharing some of mine. So this week, we are looking at honorable versus dishonorable characters. Now, this comes up all the time in plays and movies and literature. You have the dastardly villain, the noble hero, the dirty cop, the knight in shining armor. And these are tropes that show up all the time through dramatic literature all the way back to the Greeks. And even before then, it even shows up in things like Sumerian literature. So, on top of a character's fighting style, the level of martial training they may have had, the goal for the violence, and whatever plot-specific actions that need to take place, sometimes your violence design needs to include what is basically a commentary on how honorable a character is or isn't. And this week, we're going to talk about tangible ways you can address that issue and present an honorable or a dishonorable character. Before we can get going, of course, we have to define what is honor. Now, the definition that I like from Merriam-Webster is a keen sense of ethical conduct. Okay, but of course that also brings up the question, what constitutes honor or ethical conduct when it comes to violence? Well, this notion is completely cultural. It's very specific to a society in the geographic region, and also it varies from time period to time period. 
For example, just look at a couple of the words that I use to describe honorable and dishonorable characters. The noble hero, the dastardly villain. Now, noble, of course, really refers to the upper class of society in Western European medieval uh, feudalism, while villain is a corruption of villain, which originally simply meant peasant or someone of the lower class. So immediately, our entire perception of a sense of ethical conduct is based essentially in classist prejudice, as, as if a common person couldn't be ethical, or if a noble person couldn't do things that were dishonorable. I also mentioned that our view of what is honorable or ethical does also change through time periods. Uh, Our view of knights and chivalry or the chivalric code didn't really exist, at least as we think of it, in the Middle Ages. Our modern perception is very strongly colored by a reinterest in medieval things during the Victorian era. And it wasn't until then that people decided to come up with a a rigid and written-down code of chivalry. As the knights were in the actual era, they didn't have anything near as hard and fast as we later codified, which we now think of as what all knights lived under. It simply isn't true. So our perception of what is honorable changes through time as well. There is a, a great resource for the violence designer, a book called... The Code of the Warrior in History, Myth, and Everyday Life, written by Rick Fields. I think it does a great job of discussing these various codes, and or I'm going to call later rules of engagement, uh, of warrior societies throughout history. And it, it's great because it talks about warriors before there was formal war, sort of tribal, and how the warrior class got invented. It goes all the way from the kings of, of, of Sumeria through Indo-Europeans and India. Uh, It has uh, Asian, uh, things like China, is in there. Of course, it covers knights. It covers uh, samurai in in Japan, Native American warriors, uh, as well as uh, women who are warriors, that whole uh, concept. It's a great resource for you. I'm going to try to put a link to it on the, the post for this page on the website. I really suggest you check it out. It really helps you get in a sense of where these warrior traditions and cultural uh, perceptions of honor come from in various society. I'm going to assume a modern Western cultural viewpoint uh, for this episode, since that applies to the American audiences that I choreograph for, and that is really important to be aware of. So your results may well vary depending on where in the world you are. And I know that people listen to this podcast literally from around the world, so your local audiences may differ. You have to decide if your local audiences have a different view of honor or ethical fighting than my audiences do, and you have to adjust for that. You can also have to adjust if the culture in the play has a different perspective on honor than your audience does, and you have to figure out how much you're going to translate that. In other words, how much you're going to make the play match the cultural expectations of the audience, or if you're going to try to educate the audience by showing them the different cultural expectations or perceptions of honor about the culture in the play. You have to play that that sliding scale and uh, and decide what's best for your own show. But just so you know, for this, from going forward, I'm going to talk 
from things from a modern Western, really American perspective on violence. And again, even there, we have a wide range of perspectives from uh, people who disagree on levels of force and proliferation of weapons, etc., etc., etc. So there is not a blanket statement that works worldwide or even countrywide or in my same city when it comes down to it. But I'm going to speak in generalities that are paradoxically specific to my time and place. Okay, let's get into it. So honor, or ethics in fighting, this implies that some things are unethical or dishonorable, and therefore shouldn't do them. To steal a label from the military, like I mentioned before, I'm going to call these ethical principles rules of engagement. Now, rules of engagement, or ROE as the military likes to abbreviate everything, it covers a few areas that are often useful in design to help paint characters as honorable or dishonorable. I really break out four of them. The first one is, what triggers allow violence to be used? And before I go too much further, I am going to go off on a little tangent here on the difference between violence and force. What is the difference? Well, it's semantic. Force is what, quote, good guys uh, label their violence. This is what police officers use. They use force. They don't use violence. Um, soldiers use force to put down a rebellion. They don't use violence. It's, but it's, it is all violence, and I'm going to refer to everything as violence, even though it may seem strange to say, well, cops can use violence and that's fine. You're like, well, no, shouldn't they? It is. I'm talking about the same thing. So, little side note about uh, the semantics of force versus violence. Okay, so what triggers allow violence to be used? That's number one. Number two, who are acceptable targets of violence? Number three, what types of violence are permissible? And number four, what tactics are not an option? So let's work through these one by one. First of all, let's start with triggers. Triggers are the catalysts that allow violence to happen. In other words, if X happens, then I can do violence. So the, the most general trigger is on site or no warning at all. This is citing the enemy, that's enough to start violence whether they see you or not. And for war, for example, the fact that I am in World War II, I see someone in a German uniform, that is a trigger. I can start firing, right? On sight. Number two, uh, of, in terms of triggers, we're kind of moving from the large scale or the farthest distance to the closest distance. Uh, the, the next level down is a credible threat. That is, the opponent is in range to do harm and seems to be starting an action to do so. Uh, this is just a threat at this point, not an actual attack. Think of, think of the Old West gunfight, uh, which probably never happened in reality. But our classic image of it, two men staring at each other in the street about, you know, 10 yards apart, hands hovering over their holsters, and the bad guy goes for his gun. That's a credible threat. It isn't, uh, the, the, the villain has not attacked technically yet, but he is developing a threat, and the good guy is, quote, honorable to be able to draw his gun and shoot the guy dead 
even if the villain's gun never cleared the leather of the holster. Okay? Credible threat. He was starting a fair fight. Sort of, if you think of, if you like Firefly, you know, kill anyone in a fair fight, or if he looks like he's going to start a fair fight. That, that is the credible threat level of trigger. The next one down is the actual attack. This is when the opponent has already initiated some kind of physical attack on you. It could be a punch or a stab or shot at you. This is a trigger for violence that says, okay, violence is now acceptable because I've been attacked. It's a pretty obvious one. The last level, well, there's really two. The next level down is a verbal attack. Now, actors and directors often don't recognize verbal violence. But there certainly is, and you as a violence designer should be aware of this in shows and help actors and sometimes directors recognize that a verbal attack has begun starting the violence before a physical attack happens. But a verbal attack can sometimes cue violence depending on what is said. You know, they insult your mother or they tell you that they've murdered your brother and those kinds of verbal attacks can be a trigger for violence. The last one, of course, why I didn't know whether I should include it or not, but it's no trigger. It means that violence is begun and there's no obvious reason why this would happen. You know, this is the uh, the sociopathic killer who just stabs someone for fun or and that kind of thing. So those are your triggers. Now, I'm going to, with all of these categories, I'm going to discuss how to slide the scale uh, for honorable versus dishonorable uh, characters. But I want to get these categories down so that we, we kind of have a, a vocabulary to talk about things uh, together here. Next, we're going to look at targets. Who is an acceptable target of violence? The biggest categorization in this area is enemy combatants versus non-combatants. In other words, if that person is a soldier in a uniform, violence is largely justified in war. We may take issue, however, with seeing that enemy combatant walk into a restaurant with a lot of civilians or non-combatants and then sending a missile to blow up the entire establishment. Sometimes that is considered dishonorable behavior because most of those people were not active combatants. Now, when you look at World War II, there was a whole lot of carpet bombing. A lot of bombing of civilians happened on both sides. The Allies, the Axis, the Japanese. This happened a lot. We knew we were bombing cities with a lot of non-combatant people. So now it gets a little gray, but I just want you to be aware that that's the biggest separation of enemy combatants versus non-combatants. The other level that you need to think about is, is the enemy a, quote, credible threat to the character? One of the classic versions of this, this credible threat argument um, women, for example. Ever hear the phrase, never hit a girl? Yeah. And that is a cultural thing that is a basically based on a ridiculous notion that women are not a physical threat to a man unless they have some advantage, like high-level martial arts training, or a weapon, or a superpower in a, in a fantasy setting, right? It's based on that idea, which is a complete fallacy, but we have that cultural notion of never hit a woman, never hit a girl. Also, small men, short guys like me, I'm only five foot six, so 
I have never been in a bar fight. You know, one of the reasons, A, might be that I'm basically a courteous person, but B, is because beating me up proves nothing. Okay? If you're a big guy and you beat me up, well, whoop-de-doo, everyone's like, yeah, that, that was just being a bully, right? And if you were to get in a fight and through some sense of pure luck, I beat you, that's intensely shaming for you more than just getting beat up by somebody your own size, right? Ever hear the phrase, pick on someone your own size? That is, again, a cultural warning saying it is dishonorable to pick a fight with someone smaller or less strong than you because they are not a credible threat. Children fall into that same category. You hit a child, which means they have no real physical way of doing much damage to an adult. And so, striking them, which does has the potential for a lot of damage, is considered very dishonorable or unethical because they are not a credible threat to you. Likewise, if someone is tied up or unconscious or being held by a couple of guys, punching them in the stomach, dishonorable. Even if that is a male enemy combatant and two of your friends are holding his arms back and you punch him in the gut or punch him in the face, we go, "Eh, that is not how a a hero, quote-unquote, operates. So, those are your your two major kinds of uh, target differentiations. Enemy combatants versus civilians or non-combatants and who is a credible threat to the character. Let's move down into the types of violence. Basically, it kind of breaks down for me into three types of violence. Verbal violence, unarmed, and weapon violence. Now, obviously, in terms of physical harm, that starts with zero possibility for physical harm at verbal and moves up the scale to potentially lethal harm at weapons. Also can be unarmed, of course, but there's sort of a gray area in there. The honorable character has to be forced to move up that scale. I'm going to talk about that a bit later, but think of those three kinds, verbal, unarmed, and weapon violence, as kind of an increasing scale of violence. When it comes to violence, what types of violence can be used? This is very much related to the goal of the character, the goal of violence. It, again, is sort of a spectrum. At the lowest end is the avoidance or the de-escalation of violence. Next up, you have subdual of the threat, the enemy opponent, up to to injure the person, all the way to kill. And we're going to talk about how you can use that, uh, those goals, and where it comes uh, on that violence spectrum to show a character being dishonorable or honorable. Next in types of violence are the level of potential harm. I mentioned this briefly when I talked about a credible threat, but there's a few mismatches that really highlight if a character is honorable versus dishonorable, and I'll tell you why a bit later. Like mismatched types of weapons or types of violence. Verbal assault versus a knife. If I say, your father, you know was a hamster, and you stabbed me for it, that's a mismatch of violence that probably indicates that the knife-wielding character is somewhat less than honorable. Also, a mismatched threat range, like a knife versus a sword, or a sword versus a longbow. There's a reason that uh, 
people looked down on archers in medieval combat and why gunpowder was outlawed in Japan, in uh, shogunate uh, Japan for so many years because it was considered dishonorable because the guy who just had a sword couldn't possibly hurt you. Sort of goes back to being a credible threat. Another level of potential harm mismatch is technological advantage. You know, bows and arrows versus a Gatling gun. Yeah, those bows and arrows are a ranged weapon. They can certainly kill you. But that Gatling gun is a huge technological advantage that allows one or two uh, soldiers with that to mow down tens, dozens, maybe even a hundred of the uh, warriors armed with less technologically advanced weaponry. And another, uh, the last kind of mismatches that I think of is mismatch potential damage. Again, I mentioned like the adult male hitting a child. The the man has much greater potential for for doing damage than the child does. But the same is true of a knife versus a gun. Um, Or if we're having a fight in the office and I grab up a stapler and I bonk you with it and you pull out a gun and shoot me. That, that level of, uh, of potential damage is very great, and usually the one who has the disadvantaged weapon uh, is, is more considered, quote, more honorable than the person who has the greater threat. The last question, um, or the last sort of uh, one of the four T's about uh, honor or ethics in fighting, is tactics. This is the, the purview of dirty tricks. You know, uh, in fact, we even have a name for some of these dirty tricks, like a sucker punch. This is the punch where the person isn't expecting it and you haul off and hit them, right? So that's a dirty trick. But other dirty tricks are like uh, kicking someone in the groin. You know, even professional boxing matches will be stopped if a guy hits below the belt, right? Then, ooh, that's not what we do. We So that, that tactic is off the table. But many other ones are as well, uh, gouging someone's eyes, or throwing sand in their eyes to blind them, or poison blades like Laertes does to Hamlet. These are all dirty tricks. Uh, and those kind of dirty tricks are usually off the table uh, when it, for honorable characters. But of course, they're, they're the stock in trade of the dishonorable character. The other tactics that might be off the table are, quote, excessive violence. That is, violence that goes beyond what the supposed goal uh, of the character is. If uh, the police have an active gunman and end up shooting him, if they then run up and double tap him as they move by and shoot him twice more in the head, that we go, whoa, what are you doing? Even though they were, they were shooting to kill before, we accept that because technically their goal was to subdue. But if, if they shoot him, he goes down and he's not quite dead, we believe it's excessive if they go up and finish him off. However, a soldier in a wartime situation moving through a city shoots a guy, moves past him, sees the guy still moving on the ground, fires a couple in his head, we go, yeah, well, that's war, right? Because there's a different goal for the violence. Okay, now these four T's, the triggers, um, the targets, the the, uh, type of violence, and the tactics, think of these as dials or sliders. They're very situational. For example, honorable characters don't use dirty tricks, right? But they can be clever, which is basically a trick to what we might call, quote, level the playing field. Again, we use these terms to make, oh, that's more fair, when in reality... 
to survive violence, most of us would go, well, I'll do anything I have to do to survive. So it's interesting. So we have this very sliding scale. You can think of a few basic truisms that uh, Western modern audiences believe are generally honorable versus generally dishonorable. Let's talk about triggers. Honorable characters won't use violence until the triggers occur. And it's more honorable if the enemy is expecting the attack. If I, as the, quote, honorable character, sucker punch someone, (laughs) well, that's a little like, that was strange, okay? It's it's not considered, quote, fully honorable. Uh, Likewise, we wouldn't shoot somebody unless they became either a credible threat, like a gunfighter, or they're already attacking us, except in time of war. So, even if that police officer recognizes that guy over there is the person who just killed an officer on the highway, we're not, quote, allowed for that officer to just open fire, okay? So, the the honorable characters have to wait until their triggers happen, before they can initiate violence. However, that is not true for dishonorable characters. When it comes to targets, we're never going to use... We, honorable characters, aren't going to use violence beyond subdual on non-credible threats. They'd prefer to avoid or de-escalate. Even if that's, for example, uh, in your play, a woman comes at the hero male with a knife. Well... For him to just knock the knife out of her hand and stab her with his own knife, we go, ooh, that's that's somehow not okay. It's a weird cultural thing, even though she had a deadly attack against him and he responded with deadly force. It seems, quote-unquote, more honorable if he was to disarm the knife and maybe hit her, you know, armbar her to subdue her or something like that, or simply avoid, avoid until she uh, decides to stop attacking or something like that. So less honorable people will respond uh, to any target any way they want. That child says something to them, they could just shoot him in the head. And we go, whoa, that person is not a nice guy. So uh, when it comes to types of violence... Less honorable characters, dishonorable characters, they try to fight with as much advantage as they can collect. If you bring a knife, I'll bring a gun, right? And uh, I'll poison my foil against you in this in this fencing bout. They'll do all these kinds of things. Whereas honorable characters will sometimes literally give up their own advantage to, quote, fight fair. Um, so I come up and I have my my gun trained on the villain. He tries to fire me. His gun goes click, click, and he's out of ammunition. He throws it down and puts up his fist. Now, (laughs) the smart thing might be just shoot him anyway, but no, usually the honorable character, a hero, sets down his gun and goes in to fight mano a mano, right? Weird cultural things that uh, are kind of really disadvantageous to your own survival. And... Speaking of your own survival, tactics. Honorable characters don't do dirty tricks, even if they're losing. They don't break the, quote, rules of the fight. They're not going to use excessive violence beyond the goal. They're not going to do a lot of these things 
that a dirty villain might do. They're going to fight by the rules and win, quote, fair and square. But again, all of these, and it's important to remember, they're dials, they're sliders, they, there's gray areas in there. For instance, if the audience is, you know, tired of seeing the heroic or the honorable character get taken advantage of over and over and over, they might cheer if he just suddenly, you know, when the villain is talking and, and saying about how he's going to get out of the court case, he's bought the judge, and we just throw him off the roof, like in uh, Elliot Ness's in Untouchables with Kevin Costner, we cheer for that and go, yeah, he did. You know, because it comes up to the second idea that the dishonorable character, quote, really deserved it. Now, for that to work in your design, you have to set that up earlier in the production. Uh, again, looking at the Untouchables movie, uh, the guy who gets thrown off the roof ends up murdering uh, the, the the right-hand man of uh, Elliot Ness and in a very horrific way and therefore, quote, really deserved it. And as we thought he was going to escape normal justice, our hero throws him off the roof and he lands in the hood of a car some 10 stories down. But it was okay to the audience. We bought it and accepted it as a honorable character's action because the the villain really deserved it. The last thing I want to talk about when it comes to honorable and dishonorable characters is the anti-hero, the anti-hero character. This is the character who uses dishonorable means to achieve a good goal. In fact, the quintessential anti-hero character is Robin Hood. Right? He is robbing from the rich. He's shooting guards. He's stealing money. He's doing all these, quote, dishonorable things. He's attacking with great advantage. Uh, and yet, he's trying to achieve a good goal. And there are some other, especially comic book uh, characters, who are a little less even black and white than Robin Hood is, uh, using all kinds of violence. You know, Punisher, for example, um, who are working for a quote-unquote good goal, a greater good, but are using some pretty sketchy means to get there. And yet, somehow, we can sometimes make those characters work because the ends justifies the means, I suppose? It's very cultural and pretty subjective, so you get to play with it. Well, I hope this helped. Uh, if you have questions about uh, honorable or dishonorable characters or, or anything uh, like that, or if you have a suggestion for another uh, podcast episode, please let me know. You can visit the, uh, the, the lab on Facebook, uh, at our Violence Design Lab. Just search for it. You'll find it. Or come to the website, leave a comment on a page, or email me at violencedesignlab.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please let other know, others know about it. One way to do that is head on over to iTunes and leave me some stars and a review. And I've got a special offer for you. If you leave a review on iTunes uh, and let me know about it on, the, on my Facebook page or email, I'll include you in my private Facebook group called the Historical Stage Violence Forum. It's an invitation-only group for people who are interested in both historical fighting styles and stage combat, and you can interact and ask questions directly of me and really members from around the world who share our interests. So, uh, so check that out. And if you want to support me in a more tangible way, you can head on over to patreon.com slash violence design lab. You'll notice there's no ads or corporate sponsorship. So my patrons really help keep this project going month after month. And I really appreciate, appreciate all their support. So until next week, 
Keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com. 